From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. Lawmakers have been busy in Washington and Austin this week. At the national level, the Senate confirmed several of President Joe Biden's nominees, including Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. The House also delivered to the Senate the article of impeachment against former President Donald Trump, and negotiations about the next COVID-19 relief package are ongoing. At the state level, redistricting talks are underway as lawmakers also deal with several coronavirus-related issues. This week, Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers talked to U.S. Senator John Cornyn, State Senator Kelly Hancock, and SMU political science professor Matthew Wilson. The second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump will begin February 9th, and Cornyn said he has several questions for House impeachment managers. He talked to Julie this week about impeachment, the coronavirus vaccine, and immigration. First of all, you attended the inauguration. It has been a difficult time in the country. President Biden now calling for unity and to turn down the temperature. How does that happen? Well, I think it, it speaks to how you uh, how, how the president and his administration conduct their business. Do they engage with Congress and try to build consensus, or do they sit back and issue uh, executive orders, uh, unilaterally trying to direct policy? Unfortunately, I think uh, there is a a contradiction between what uh, what President Biden said, which we would all agree with, and what they're actually doing so far. And we're going to get to the executive orders in a moment here, but the second impeachment trial, that begins in about two weeks. At this point, do you have any idea where you plan to vote? Well, this is a very peculiar impeachment trial. You know, we haven't had that many in American history. We've never had one where a private citizen who used to be president was tried in the Senate, never happened before. And a lot of questions about the constitutionality of that process. And to me, it's not only a question of can we do it, it's should we do it, and what kind of precedent this sets. Because if we can try uh, a former president, then that means that when Republicans get in charge, then we could go back and try a former Democratic president. That strikes me as a very bad path to head down And I think from a um, sort of a prudential or wisdom uh, uh, point of view, that that's not a good way to go. So at this point, have you made up your mind how you plan to vote? Well, I I always, you know, I was a a judge for 13 years. I I never want to make up my mind before I hear what the presentation is by the impeachment managers. The other thing is they, um, you know, they they haven't produced any sworn testimony uh, which they did in the first trial. You recall they had extensive hearings, opportunity for cross-examination. All of that was presented to the Senate in the last impeachment trial about a year ago. So I'm going to wait and see what they present, but they're going to have to answer some of the questions, some of which I previewed with you. And do you think that the former president did have responsibility in what happened at the Capitol? And if so, how should that be addressed? Well, what I've seen it- action should the Senate take? I've seen a number of instances where people use inflammatory rhetoric and don't really know, you know, who's listening, what sort of unstable or otherwise motivated person might hear it and do something that they didn't anticipate. You know, the hard part here is that um, we believe in free freedom of speech in this country, uh, even if it's speech we disagree with. And so that's another question I have is to, to what extent can you impeach a president for exercising his right under the First Amendment to free speech? So that's a 
unique question which we haven't presented before, which we're going to have to wrestle with during this impeachment trial. Let's turn to COVID here. Texans are struggling with it. They're trying to get a vaccine. What do you think should be in the next relief bill? And how do you get people vaccinated quickly? Well, we ought to focus on exactly what you said, which is getting shots in arms. Uh, there's been great progress made, a million or so vaccinations occurring daily, uh, but we need to do more. This is, as you can imagine, a huge logistical challenge. But I was really glad to see the governor and uh, uh, the state leadership turn to some of these mega vaccination sites. I think the idea of parceling out the vaccines to individual healthcare providers is just not a way to get as many people vaccinated as soon as possible. So that's where I think the next COVID-19 bill should be focused on is getting shots in arms. What else do we need to do to make that happen? And you talked a little bit at the beginning of this interview about President Biden and executive orders. One of those, he's promising action on immigration. We've already seen Texas successfully challenge his order on it. What does it take to find some middle ground in that? That's, that is precisely a good example of what I'm talking about when I talk about unilateral action. Um, the idea that, that the president would unilaterally uh, hit the pause button on already decided deportation orders where people have already gone through the appropriate process there is uh, no telling, uh, and we're looking to see the types of people who, whose deportation uh, would be prevented under that moratorium. But the judge, uh, Judge Tipton, uh, it granted a preliminary injunction. He's going to have, in another few days, they'll have a hearing on a, on a permanent injunction. But it demonstrates that when you try to act unilaterally, like the president did on executive orders, it's going to go to court. And it's not going to be an effective or durable way to make policy. So that's why I would hope that they would learn from this and come to Congress and say, you know, let's try to figure out uh, where the consensus is. That's what we do. So if they do come to you or if President Biden says, hey, let's all work together. Are you ready to work with Democrats? Are you ready to make some compromise to make all of this happen? I am. I have uh, made it pretty clear, I think that I think we ought to start with the DACA uh, issue uh, because that's where the greatest uh, consensus lies. These, of course, are young people whose lives have been uh, caught up in the litigation for the last eight years because of the executive order issued by Barack Obama. They need and deserve some certainty uh, in their lives, and that can only come when Congress addresses this in a bipartisan way. But I'm ready to act on that and come up with, the, with, a, with a stable future for these young people who've done nothing wrong. They came as children. And I think that's a good place to start. You spoke out this week about oil and gas, concerns about that. Um, how can you find middle ground there? Well, it's, it's tough because uh, this is almost a religion uh, for some on the left. Um, you know, I saw John Kerry, the, the climate czar uh, for President Biden, say, well, people who work in the oil fields can learn uh, new jobs. Uh, they can make solar panels. I mean, that to me is just, is really kind of an elitist attitude. And I think totally at odds with what most people are living with, which is how to put food on the table, particularly during a, a tough time economically. So th that's, a, that's a hard one. We all agree that we ought to reduce emissions. And uh, we're doing that by increasing the use of natural gas in lieu of, uh, of coal. And there's other carbon capture technology that we are researching and we're seeing demonstrated on a pilot basis that I've actively supported. So we can work together to reduce emissions 
if that's the common goal, without uh, harming our economy and putting people out of work. You will be entering a unique phase in the Senate. You will be in the minority now. Both Texas senators will be in the minority. What do you have to do to get things done for Texas? And what does that mean in terms of cooperating and really trying to work with Democrats? Well, let me make it clear. It's not as much fun being in the minority as it is being in the majority. But the Senate is constructed, as you know, in a way that doesn't let either party, in almost every instance, doesn't let either party just do what they want to do on a strictly partisan basis. Senators have an opportunity to offer, um, offer uh, amendments and suggestions in committees uh, that come out and uh, then are on the floor of the Senate. There's an open, there used to be an open and robust amendment process. So senators can, can stop bad legislation. We can also try to improve legislation through that process. Uh, but it takes a little bit of cooperation um, because uh, um, everybody here has an ability either to make, uh, to add and improve something or to uh, stop it or to, uh, uh, if, if, if they're determined to do so. So I'm happy to do that. Last, last uh, session, my office and I were uh, proud of the fact we produced more bipartisan legislation than anyone else in the Congress. And we did that by, by partnering with Democrats, finding that common ground and uh, avoiding some of the more controversial issues, but still making that incremental progress, which I think is important in the legislative process. In Austin, lawmakers have already started to hold redistricting talks, a process that happens every 10 years with new data from the census. However, this year, that data is delayed because of the pandemic. Texas Senator Kelly Hancock, a Republican from North Richland Hills, represents the state's 9th district, which covers about a third of Tarrant County, including parts of Arlington, Keller, and Euless, among other cities. Here's the senator with Julian Gromer. This is unusual because you don't even have census data yet. No work, nothing to work off of when creating these new districts. What kind of challenge does that create? Well, it, it, it's more than unusual. I mean, between the pandemic and then the delay in getting the numbers uh, and then a uh, you know, redistricting year, it, it, it is a very, very unique start to the session and, and you know, something we just have to be flexible and, uh, and work with what we have. And we found out this week, in fact, I believe it was yesterday announced that we, we may not even get the numbers into the system that we need to use uh, in order to do redistricting until maybe even July. With that being said, do you expect a special session then? I'm not making plans for uh, August, September, October. So my, my wife is very much understanding that uh, we anticipate being called back uh, for a special to, to address this issue. So, Senator, you know what critics say about the redistricting process, that it's too partisan, the, power in, the party in power controls the process. So is this going to be a fair process or just a power grab for, for Republicans here? Yeah, Grover, as you know, these laws are very, very detailed, and it's our intentions to, to follow the law. I mean, we're, in fact, I sat through an entire week of hearings uh, this week. We'll have another one next week where we're hearing virtual testimony because of the pandemic from people all over the state of Texas. And and uh, even the variations that we deal with are, are very, very tiny. And when you're talking about drawing 150 House seats, you know, drawing the congressional seats, drawing the Senate seats, uh, to find one or two issues, uh, the reality is the vast majority of the, uh, of the states, the districts, uh, but 
you know, our entire attempt is to follow the letter of the law, make sure that's being done, knowing that, it, you know, there's going to be challenges. Yeah, I mean, every Texas MAP senator has been challenged under the Voting Rights Act at, at some point or another. Are you committed to protecting the rights of, of Texas's minority voters? I, Grover, we're committed to protecting the rights of all voters. Uh, and that's where, you know, I've spent hours uh, sitting, listening to testimony uh, this week. We'll do it next week. And so we're committed to all the voters of the state of Texas to addressing uh, the letter of the law and making sure we follow that uh, as we go through redistricting to make sure the reapportionment that uh, everyone is, is represented uh, equally. Let's turn now to COVID-19. Texans, they're struggling to get the vaccine. What can the legislature and the state do to speed this up? But Julie, as you know, I mean, Texas kind of leading the nation in, in getting shots in arms. And I, and I really like that being the governor's goal is really getting uh, the shots in the arms of those. In fact, uh, I was working with my, you know, my, my parents. Uh, they're in their 80s. Uh, we walked them through literally uh, step by step and make sure they were registered online. And and then uh, was notified while I was in Austin this week that they actually got the call and were able to get their vaccine. So uh, I think, uh, you know, Texas is kind of leading the way and setting the example. And I know there's some new initiatives that the governor put forth. You know, these, these hubs have been great and it's helped us get a number of the vaccines out. But we also have people that uh, aren't able to, to, to make it to these uh, hub locations. And the, and the governor's uh, challenge TDM, our, our uh, emergency management team, to make sure that we address now those that have difficulty making it to uh, these hub locations. Uh, but I commend both at the state level and even at the local level, the tremendous job they're doing getting shots in arms and making sure we're getting the, the vaccines really as quickly as we get it uh, to those with uh, across the state. Now, I got to ask you, you, Senator, you said Texas is leading the way. There are some reports that Houston Chronicle just had one that actually Texas is not leading the way, but kind of last or near the bottom in, in, in getting shots in the arms. How do you respond to that? And what do you need from the federal government, if anything? Well, I think we're working pretty well with the federal government. Uh, I know we're continuing to get more vaccines. You know, we've gone from a, a million uh, to, to two million in a, in a very brief period of time. We continue to see the, the logistical challenges with these vaccines being addressed and, and expedited uh, to doing that. And so I'm not sure whether the Chronicle gets their information. I, I'm getting my information from, um, you know, the, those that are actually uh, involved in the process. So uh, what I see is the number of shots in arms in the state of Texas is, is uh, you know, we're, we're hitting the numbers, we're hitting our marks, and it's continued to improve each and every week. The legislator operating very differently this year. What's it like trying to get your business done during COVID-19? Uh, you know, Julie, the, the good news is uh, we typically start a little bit slower because of the constitutional uh, limitations that we have within the first 60 days. And so uh, what we're not seeing or, or a, a flood of people at the Capitol, we're not seeing as many people there at the Capitol. I don't know that we've had more than, I bet we haven't had 30 people in our gallery uh, uh, during the Senate so far. And so, um, you know, once we get committee assignments coming out, I think the House is going to have that soon. We'll have committee assignments coming out. Once uh, bills are getting drafted and, and sent to committee and as chair of business and commerce, I know as soon as I've talked to the lieutenant governor this week, uh, as soon as we get enough bills into our committee, we'll be having hearings oh, here in the next couple of weeks. And then, it, it, then I believe it'll be 
business as close to usual as we can get uh, in the midst of a COVID where we'll uh, be challenged by making sure that we comply with the CTC requirements and, and really health and safety is, is a prime focus uh, in the legislature. State Senator Kelly Hancock, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Cromer. Good seeing y'all. The U.S. Senate is split between 50 Republicans and 50 Democrats for the first time in 20 years. Democrats ultimately control the chamber because Vice President Kamala Harris would break any tie. The parties will use a power-sharing model they used in 2001, but it took some negotiating to get to this point. A lot of that had to do with the legislative filibuster, a move that can prevent a measure from being brought to a vote. Minority Leader Mitch McConnell wanted assurance that Democrats would not do away with it, but after Democratic Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona voiced their positions on it, it appeared Majority Leader Chuck Schumer did not have the votes to end the filibuster. To break down all these Senate rules and what it means for how the chamber will operate in the next two years, here's SMU political science professor Matthew Wilson with Julian Gromer. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Can you sort of talk us through the big changes in the Senate? You know, the Democrats take the majority, but yet it's still 50-50. So the balance of power. Right. Well, certainly it's significant that Democrats uh, can effectively control the chamber now. But the real power rests with their most moderate members because they have the thinnest of possible majorities needing a tie-breaking vote from uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. So that means that the Democratic agenda in the Senate is really constrained by whatever they can get people like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema to agree with. And so the Democratic agenda, uh, at least that is supported by their more moderate members, has a good prospect of success, but really left-leaning legislation is going to have a rough go. Yeah, Professor, I, that sounds absolutely right. And, and it raises the question, should Democrats try to do things like end the filibuster or whatever to you know, change the rules? to um, uh, make it uh, possible for them with that tie-breaking vote to get legislation through. But that opens up a, a, a can of worms, doesn't it? Or does it? Well, it does, uh, particularly because some of those more moderate Democrats in the Senate have signaled that they're very wary or just outright opposed to making those kinds of procedural changes. So uh, you've got at least two Democrats in the Senate who have said that they are categorically opposed to ending the filibuster. So uh, I don't think that that is in the cards, at least in the short term. Um, and I think the rubber will hit the road with that issue fairly soon on some contentious measures. So we've just seen a bill introduced, for example, uh, to make D.C. a state. And that's something that Republicans are likely to filibuster. And, you know, we'll see whether Senators Manchin and Cinema stay true to their expressed position, which is they won't end the filibuster. If that's the case, then the D.C. statehood initiative is going to die uh, because you're not going to get 60 votes in support of, of D.C. statehood. Uh, so certainly that procedural hurdle in the Senate uh, complicates things. Uh, but we also have to realize that in the House, the Democrats have a much reduced majority as well. And so just a few moderate Democrats in the House uh, can put the brakes on Nancy Pelosi's objectives as well. So we really do have this dynamic of very small Democratic majorities in both chambers of Congress. So when I think one thing that people need to understand or will be helpful in understanding the new Senate is 
it's 50-50, and if there's a tie, it's broken by the vice president. However, each committee now, if I understand it correctly, has the same amount of Democrats and Republicans. So what if there's a tie in a committee? Well, so if there's, if there's a tie in a committee, then uh, presumably the bill that's being proposed does not go forward unless the floor uh, initiates what they call a discharge petition, which is essentially ordering that the bill be reported forward out of committee. And that could certainly happen. But this, this power sharing agreement on the committees, at least in theory, should result in more bipartisanship, more moderate measures, more compromise across ideological lines, uh, it's just that we've gotten to a place in American politics where that's kind of hard to imagine. Uh, there, I mean, the, the well has been so poisoned in D.C. and in our broader national political discourse between Democrats and Republicans that that, that sort of bipartisan, centrist, common sense legislating is going to be hard to come by. So, Matthew, where does this where does this dynamic put a guy like Senator Ted Cruz, who when he was first elected, rolled the Tea Party wave was a, you know, uh, didn't compromise a lot. Uh, and, and then obviously uh, ran for president, Republicans enjoyed uh, power in the Senate. What, 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 how does he act now, you think? And to a, a lesser extent, what happens with Cornyn? Well, I think someone like John Cornyn is better positioned to be a bipartisan deal maker than Ted Cruz is. Uh, Ted Cruz is not someone who has made a lot of friends in the Senate. Uh, he's not someone who works easily with other legislators. He certainly has cultivated a broad national profile, and I think he'll continue uh, to, to enjoy a certain national following. But I wouldn't look to Senator Cruz as one of the people who's going to be at the heart of this kind of cross-party deal making. Um, that being said, there are certain surprising issues on which Cruz does have common ground with people across the aisle. We saw this yesterday. Yeah, gangsta. Ted Cruz and <laughs> right, where Ted Cruz and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez were on the same page with regard to wanting an investigation of what's going on with uh, Robin Hood and Reddit and and the whole uh, GameStop stock bubble. So you know there might be a few issues like that where there could be some surprising uh, bipartisan compromise that involves Senator Cruz. But, but I think John Cornyn's style and way of being in the Senate lends itself better to working in a narrowly divided chamber than does Senator Cruz's. So basically the senators to really keep your eye on are Senators Manchin, Sinema, um, Murkowski, Collins, Mitt Romney, Senator Romney. That sounds like the group that really can, Ben Sass, that can yes. really. I would add Rob Portman into that uh, from Ohio. He's part of a somewhat more. Oh, and now he's not running again, right? Right. So he'll be on, only there until 2022. So, uh, but, but in this term, he would be, you know, one of those folks closer to the center. If he's not running again, then he can really kind of do whatever he wants. That's, that, that is in some ways liberating for yeah. any member of Congress or any senator who's not intending to seek re-election. They no longer have to curry favor with the power brokers in their own party. They no longer have to cultivate particular constituencies. So, you know, Rob Portman at this stage doesn't really have to worry about angering any faction within the Republican Party. He can do what he thinks is best uh, because he's not seeking re-election. And so there's a certain element of liberation that goes along with that. 
Pat Toomey actually falls into the same category from Pennsylvania. He's said that he's not running for re-election. And, you know, Toomey is, is a pretty conservative guy, but, uh, you know, you won't have to worry, for example, about angering the Trumpian base because he's not seeking higher office. Let me just, let me, let me finally ask you this about uh, building consensus and getting things done. And, and this has more to do with the House than the Senate, but we saw uh, several North Texas Democrats, BC, Mark BC included, sent a letter to Joe Biden about his, his energy uh, executive actions and things like that and, and the impact on Texas. Is there a, a fight coming between the progressives and, and the moderates and the Democratic Party, you think, on issues like this? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think um, some of the tensions within the Republican Party, because they've been so dramatic in the last days of the Trump administration and with the Capitol riot and all of that, those tensions have obscured and taken our, our eye off the tensions that exist within the Democratic Party, uh, because there is very much a division between the Bernie Sanders AOC squad wing, those who want to take the Democratic Party in a decisively leftist direction and some of the more moderate members and with with democratic majorities being as small as they are the difficulty for the democratic party is that either one of those wings can hold up anything they want to do right if you lose the far left you can't move legislation because you don't have enough of a majority likewise if you lose the moderates you can't move legislation because you don't have a big enough majority so yeah i think there will be some tension going forward and absolutely, I think Democrats from energy states like Texas, like Pennsylvania, um, are going to be very wary of some of President Biden's aggressive efforts to scale back fossil fuel production. And we saw that reflected in this letter that was sent this week by the Texas Democrats, because they know, I mean, there's just no way around it, that the sum total of these various executive actions that President Biden has taken is going to hurt the, the energy industry, which is really important in Texas. And you know, we're talking about tangible job losses for their constituents. Uh, and you know, we will should expect some friction within the party. Professor, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you so oh. much. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Senator John Cornyn, State Senator Kelly Hancock, and Professor Matthew Wilson for joining the show this week. Stay up to date with everything related to Texas politics at NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. We'll talk to you next week.